All right, everyone, if you want to, please turn to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Um, we are going to be in several key passages today. Uh, many of you who have been with us a while, I know we've kind of had a break from First Sunday, but many of you who've been with us a while know that we use First Sunday as a means of teaching doctrine. Uh, and that's not to say that we don't teach doctrine every other Sunday, uh, but normally we're going chapter by chapter through a, a, a book of Scripture. Uh, our house church is going through 1 Corinthians right now. Uh, normally it's one or two chapters a week we're just studying through. Uh, but on first Sunday, as we're bringing together more than one house church, one of the things we like to do is say, okay, well, so that we don't have to sync everybody up on, on study. But also, we want to address key doctrinal issues that we want to make sure our whole church is ready to respond to. Uh, and you may remember we did a series on the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, we did another series on the attributes of God. We did another one on uh, being uh, a clear on our views of men and women and how God has designed humans. Um, and what I've noticed, though, is that currently in our culture, we are facing, uh, both here in the United States, uh, we see also in Canada, clearly across the globe, issues of how do we as Christians respond when governing authorities are telling us to do something other than that which God has commanded. And my goal is not to sit down and say, well, here's where you break the law. My goal is for us to look at scripture um, and see several key passages in order for us to have uh, the whole counsel of scripture give us some kind of an understanding of a framework with which we can discern how to respond in certain situations. Uh, many of you know I joke a lot about disobeying government, um, but I don't want you all to go on my opinions uh, or even on my joking. We want to look to what God's word says to this today. Um, so with that in mind, um, there are several key scriptures, and if you go to the website, uh, you can look, as we're looking at the whole council of scripture, passages like Romans 13, 1 Peter 2.13, Acts 5.29, the first half of the book of Daniel, um, 1 Samuel 8, and a variety of others provide us some, uh, some passages that give us kind of an understanding of like what, what does it mean for us to obey governing authorities while also obeying God. And so we're not going to have time to exegete all of these in case you're worried. They're like, oh my gosh, we're going to be here till 5 o'clock. Uh, we're going to go through several key passages, uh, but we're going to take this very briefly. And the very first one we're going to look at is Matthew 28, 19, or 18 through 20. This, of course, is the Great Commission passage in which Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, tells his disciples to go and make disciples. So I'm going to begin in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Uh, I, want you to, I want you to notice some key things in this passage that often get glossed over. Um, rightly, the focus of this passage is on the proclamation of the gospel. It's go and make disciples. That is the focus. But I've noticed that culturally we've had a tendency, maybe it's within evangelicalism, maybe it has to do with the fact that it has been relatively easy from a legality perspective to be a Christian in the United States. And so we tend to say, yeah, 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 let's focus on the gospel. Please don't neglect the fact that in verse 18, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
If it's not clear, that means Jesus is king. And so before he says the next passage then, he's given us that clarity, and then he says, go therefore and make disciples. The idea is, since Jesus is king over everything, we are to go to every people group and proclaim the gospel that Jesus is in charge, that he's died to pay our sin debt, he's risen from the dead to give us new life. And then he goes on to say, make sure you're teaching them, after he's baptized them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That the lordship of Jesus over everything and the desire, the need to obey his commands are linked with the proclamation of the gospel. Everybody with me? So anything else we understand about human realms of authority, we need to understand that they are under the authority of Christ. So when we talk about spheres of authority, we recognize that Jesus is the primary king over everything. But then if we're looking to scripture, we see several places in which uh, different aspects of authority are listed. Uh, One, you could arguably say the first one, is within the family, the father is seen as the head of the home and the authority. Uh, You see in Ephesians 5 and 6, there's language of the father leading the home, the husband overseeing his wife. He is the head over her, not in a chauvinistic sense, but in the sense that he sacrifices and leads uh, as the sacrificial servant, just like Christ loves the church. We see later in Ephesians 6, the language is, hey, children, obey your parents. That means that mother has a role of authority as well over the children. And so within the home, one sphere of authority is you have the father, parents, children. Everybody with me? That's sphere number one. Secondarily, we have within the church. Uh, We see 1 Timothy 3, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 5. The language there is that there are elders, overseers, that God has called to oversee the church. Uh, You all will recall, based on the example in the New Testament, uh, we have co-equal elders. I am not the boss over all the elders. I am an elder. Uh, Bob's one of our elders. Dan is one of our elders. He's around here somewhere. I've already seen him. Um, we, have a, we also have Ness, and then we have Dan Beach. We actually have three out of the five elders are named Dan. I promise we didn't plan that. It's just how it played out. Um, but the idea is those elders will have to answer to God for overseeing the saints. And so there's an authority structure there, but those elders are also submitted to one another in love. Uh, They have to meet certain requirements, but that is how God has designed the church. So imagine a secondary sphere of authority. The third sphere of authority that we're going to talk about a little bit more today is civil government. And very clearly in Romans 13 and other passages, the language is that God has instituted that civil authority. Now, as we'll see, it does not mean an absolute authority, but it is an authority from God. You don't screw around with that. Making sense? All right, we're going to get into more on this in a second. Uh, Just for the sake of notes, I'm going to mention there are two other uh, authoritative relationships that are mentioned in Scripture, though I would say they they seem to fit into a different category. The one is we see in Luke 10 that the disciples, and I would say that might include us, um, we have some level of authority over the spiritual realm. Um, We see in Luke 10 that, like, you proclaim the gospel and the demons flee, not because you're anything special, but because... Jesus is king, and when you declare his kingship, his authority is there, and the enemy doesn't like that, and he has to flee. Interesting. The other thing is we see in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 2, there is language of within the workplace um, that you have bosses, and you submit to them, and that's biblical and right. Um, Although these two are not going to be the focus of our study today. So, key thing, as we're recognizing this, we obey governing authorities 
to obey Christ. Um, when we see scripture, and we're going to see, especially in, the Peter, uh, in Peter's passage, the language here is that I'm obeying the sheriff, or I am obeying the governor, or Congress, or uh, the Constitution, not because then they, of an, in and of themselves, are some type of deity that deserves to be obeyed. It is because Christ, in his kingship, has placed them in positions of authority, and so, in order to not be rebelling against my true king, I am not rebelling against those authorities. Cool? No problem. However, we should never obey governing authorities at the expense of obeying Christ, as we'll see in just a minute. So, let's dig into Romans 13 here. Uh, so, Romans 13, if you want to turn there, uh, we're going to be in just a couple of these. Romans 13 is probably going to be our anchor passage today. Um, so, Romans 13, starting in verse 1. I always like to remind you, Paul is writing to the church at Rome in the city where the emperor lives. Um, also, Paul is kind of sort of breaking the law just by writing this letter. Uh, you could argue that part of what Paul is teaching is that Jesus is king, Caesar is not. That already puts him on the outs when it comes to the pagan emperor worship that was in play. And yet, recognizing that, Paul writes this. Uh, verse 1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. That is a reference, by the way, to capital punishment. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, Attending to this very thing, pray to all, uh, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Um, this is pretty simple and straightforward. Like, I'm supposed to obey governing authorities. I want to pay attention to a few key principles here, because what we know is throughout church history, it has often been tyrants seeking to get someone to disobey God's law, who have appealed to Romans 13 to argue that you need to sin in obedience to them. Uh, we know that the Third Reich implemented Romans 13 to try to get Christians to take part in the murdering of Jews. Uh, so we have to recognize, hmm, there is a line on this, and we need to identify where that line is. So some key principles out of Romans 13. First, God has ordained civil government. We are to be subject to governing institutions because they are ordained by God to maintain civil order. Uh, please recognize, you're not going to get around this. God ordained civil government. Uh, the institution, just like the family, is part of his design for creation. You cannot get around the fact that this is how God has built creation. 
Um, I will tell you, for a time, Christian anarchy was looking real appealing to me. Um, it made some good sense. Um, and the, the, some of them will debate, and they're like, well, we're not anarchists, we're monarchists. We just don't want to acknowledge any other... Just to be honest, God has made civil authority. However, biblical civil government, as we see in Romans 13, approves good and punishes evil. Note the description in Romans 13 is that, hey, if you are obeying God's law and you are doing what you're supposed to do, you have nothing to fear from governing authorities in so much as they are acting within their God-ordained role. And I want us to make sure we're clear on this. The language of Romans 13 is describing a government that is fulfilling its biblical function. And so in that sense, if the government is doing what God has called it to do, you can't go wrong obeying it. Similar to how within the framework of a home, if a father is doing what God has commanded him to do, the children can't go wrong obeying their father. But we will recognize that there is such a thing as abusive husbands. There is such a thing as some real wickedness that can be at times commanded within a home. And we would certainly say to a child, like, don't obey if he's telling you to do something sinful, right? We recognize that their authority, because it stems from Christ's authority, exists within the administration of the law of God, just like Romans 13 describes of our civil authorities. This is making sense? We're with us? I'm trying to make sure we're putting the right frameworks in here so that you guys don't go and call the cops on me later. Um, here's another key thing that we should keep in mind that the magistrates, and I would say using the term magistrate loosely to refer to governing authorities, whether that be a, um, a sheriff, whether that be a judge, whether that be a president or a senator or the whomever else you can think of, a police officer, magistrates are God's servants, not the other way around. They exist to serve God's purposes, not their own. And we, as we will see, any magistrate who inhibits godly justice or otherwise restricts obedience to God, is no longer operating within his delegated authority. Hopefully, can we see this from Romans 13, that their job is to administer God's commands. If they're no longer doing that, they're not working within the framework that God has given them. Be very cautious with this, because I don't want you to go nuts with this. We want to make sure we've described this properly. So civil authorities are valid in so much as they enforce God's standards of justice. That would be his law. Cool? Uh, feel free to stop me with any questions if you want, otherwise we're going to read on, because we need to face kind of the elephant in the room about this. Proverbs 29.2 references that when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. And so even within scripture, we recognize that there is such a thing as ungodly leaders that do wicked things, and when they do, people groan. So... Um, with that in mind, I'm going to actually re-ask two of our catechism questions. Um, and I promise this is going to be meaningful. So any of the kids who are nearby, question 16, uh, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. I want you to remember, this should, so hopefully some light bulbs should go off and we're like, wow, you know, in the Great Commission, part of the language was teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That tied to the Great Commission, tied to discipleship, is the idea of like, hey, we need to obey what Jesus has commanded. That's partially, that is not just partially, because sin is disobeying whatever God has commanded. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, 
Um, Adam and Eve sinned by simply disobeying what God had commanded. So we recognize our definition of sin is in accordance with what God's law is. Ready with me? Cool. All right. So very next one, question 17. What is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. Now, without going too long on this, you guys remember what happened in the garden where God had given a command that you're not supposed to eat of the fruit of this tree. And what happened um, that caused them to be willing to break that command? Who spoke to them? The devil. And what was it he wanted them to do first? You guys remember his question was, has God really said? Right? Not only does he question God's authority related to his command, but then immediately tried to get them to think, ah, you know what? God's holding out on you. I have something better for you. If you just trust me, you'll be like God. The language was, trust me instead of God, obey me instead of God, and get what you want. That, brothers and sisters, is the heart of idolatry, is that I trust in some created thing rather than God, which leads me to, one, obey that other thing, whether it be myself or the serpent in the garden, or whether it be some governing authority. If I trust them instead of God, I'm giving them my allegiance by obeying them instead of God. That is the heart of idolatry, and it is the heart of sin. Everybody with me? Making sense? This is why, and we're going to jump to another passage here, sorry. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Actually, not sorry. Just, I know it's a lot of page flipping. Um, anybody remember what's happening here in this passage in Matthew 15? Uh, now, keeping, mind, keeping in mind our definitions of idolatry and, and sin uh, already. What's happening here is that people are coming to Jesus and they're going to try to catch him. So, Matthew 22, I'm going to start in verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, that is Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Uh, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, keeping in mind, this is a trap, because if Jesus says it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, arguably they're going to be like, oh, so are you, you, Caesar has your allegiance then. Whereas if he says no, well, then the Herodians are there, and they can haul him off for essentially disobeying and, and causing a riot, depending on whatever. So either way, they're trying to catch him. Notice that that's, they're trying to catch him. They don't really care which, one, which thing is right. They're trying to catch Jesus. Right? So notice that what happens. So Jesus uh, says, But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Note that he calls them hypocrites. He's calling them out very plainly. He's like, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Then he says, Show me the coin for the tax. So keep in mind, he just called them hypocrites, and he asked them to show him the coin. Right? Which means one of them has got a coin on them, and one of them has a denarius. And then he says, um, so, so they, and it says, and they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Uh, anybody familiar with pagan Roman emperor worship knows that Caesar claimed to be a god. And so what essentially the Jewish leaders here have a little idol in their pocket with a graven image of a false god, and they're carrying it around. And so when he says, you hypocrites, he's like, you're the ones carrying around idols. Now, 
This is a little bit of, I don't want to say speculation, but I recognize there are different ways where people have interpreted what all is happening here. At the very least, Jesus is acknowledging that they are hypocrites, and he's saying, look what you're doing. Reading on, uh, they said Caesar's. Then he said to them, then re therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So the question here is, Whose image is on the coin? Well, the image that is on the coin is Caesar's. And he's saying, do whatever you want with Caesar's stuff. Pay the taxes, do whatever. It's Caesar's. His image is on it. But the language then is, whose image is on you? You're creating the image of God. The God's ownership is on you. Do not give to Caesar that which belongs to God. The language here is that, man, you pay your taxes, whatever. It seems. I, I do believe Jesus is acknowledging that it's okay to pay taxes. But the language is like, you better not bow to Caesar. You better not give Caesar allegiance that belongs only to God. And arguably, the Herodians and probably these other uh, Pharisees were probably giving some allegiance to Caesar that they should not. Some speculation there. But understand, regardless, Jesus' command is, do not give to Caesar that which belongs to God. So, Key principles that we need to pull out of this passage is one, paying taxes is not a sin. I don't like taxes. Um, I would actually say, I would argue that there are aspects of our tax code that do go against God's law. But in general, I would say paying taxes inherently is not sin. Um, be clear on that. Secondarily, treating Caesar like God is sin. So I can pay taxes, I can function within, uh, within the bounds of civil magistrates, but I better not give them allegiance that belongs to God. Cool? Reading on. I promise we're not going to spend too much time in all of these passages. We're hitting key things because my hope is that we're going to deliver unto you a framework whereby when questions arise, you can know how to handle them. Take care, sister. Good to see you. Um, so 1 Peter 3, uh, 13 through 17. Uh, you don't have to hop around with me. I'm going to hit this one pretty quick. It says, Be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as a servant of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Following this language here, Peter's giving us several different key things, not the least of which is that it is for the Lord's sake that we are subject to the civil magistrates. Uh, we made this clear earlier. It's because Christ is king that I will obey the sheriff. It is because Christ is king that I regard the Constitution as the law of the land. It is because Christ is king that I am submissive to whatever authority that God has put in that place. However, he's also saying, like, hey, don't use your freedom. He says, live as free people. Do the, do the, the stuff of freedom. Don't live in bondage. But don't use it as an excuse to get away with whatever you want. Don't engage in evil with your freedom. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And then he goes on to say, we are to honor leaders, but notice that he mentions we're only to fear God. He says, sure, honor the emperor, um, honor the, love the brotherhood, fear only God. The language is that God gets the supreme authority. I can honor anybody else under that, 
But once again, Jesus is the king. Everybody with me? Cool. All right. So lawful obedience to civil authorities is a matter of testimony. This is what, G, what Peter is getting at here. I better obey. He even uses the language of so that we can put to silence foolish people. Uh, if you're familiar with church history at all, we'll recognize that within the, uh, the, the early church, very quickly, uh, a lot of false narratives started going out about what was happening within the church. Uh, as, as there was language of communion and, it's, and Jesus saying, you know, take, eat, this is my body, there was a rumor started by the pagans that the Christians were cannibals because they're partaking of the blood and, 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 and body of Jesus, which is completely misrepresentation, but the, the slander was going on. Uh, there was slander going about that because they were not worshiping the emperor, that they must be anarchists, and that they're going to cause all kinds of disruption. There was all kinds of false teaching about what the Christians were supposedly doing. And so Peter is essentially saying, don't give them more of an excuse. Put to silence their foolishness by being great citizens. The language is obey in every way that you can. Uh, principle here, uh, we already mentioned these principles, I'm sorry. Um, the goal is here that we would obey God, and in doing so, we're recognizing and honoring civil authorities in their proper context. Uh, so then the big question comes, what happens when we are commanded by our civil authorities to do something that God has commanded us not to do? And uh, we're not going to exegete all these passages. I just want to point out the narrative of Daniel. Um, the first half of the book, especially Daniel 1 through 6, how Daniel and his friends were known, he's kind of my favorite for obvious reasons, um, they were known for obedience to their authorities. Even in Daniel, what is it, Daniel 1 and 2, where Daniel is asked to disobey diet laws, and he so respectfully asks for a variance, and gets it, by the way. Um, we see so many times to the point where, as in, um, in Daniel 6, uh, when his rivals want to get him in trouble, they recognize that we can't get this guy on anything because he obeys the law so perfectly. They had nothing on him, so what do they say they do? I know what we'll do. We'll catch him by making a law that is in direct opposition to his God's laws, knowing that that's how they would get him to disobey. So paying attention, just as Peter mentioned, so we see it in Daniel 1 through 6, that the prophet Daniel and his friends were so well known for their obedience that it meant something when they disobeyed. It meant that God's law is over man's law. Making sense? All right, so that brings us to Acts 5.29, or Acts 5.27, as we kind of finish out here. This is, of course, after Jesus has died, been raised from the dead. The apostles are going about proclaiming the gospel. The day of Pentecost has already come. The Holy Spirit's empowered them. They're going about sharing the gospel like crazy, which, by the way, directly tied to that Great Commission. They are obeying the Great Commission, proclaiming the good news to all nations, beginning in their own. Verse 27 says, And when they had brought them, they sat them before the council. That is, uh, these apostles have been arrested and brought before the Jewish council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, uh, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Um, they're referring to Jesus here. So mind you, they've already been caught proclaiming the gospel. They were told not to. They're doing it anyway. Now they've been arrested, brought before the, the council, including the high priest. So verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
If there is a phrase that should shake us, that's a pretty good one. The acknowledgement here is that Jesus is king. You are not. When the two are in disagreement, we have to obey God rather than men. And so then it says, notice they're like, you're trying to tell everybody we killed him. And then notice what Peter says in verse 30. But God of our fathers, the God of our fathers, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. They don't even, they're like, yeah, you did that. Um, <laughs> like, you're making it sound like we killed him. And he's like, yeah, you did. Um, so God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Man, um, this is godly disobedience at play. That when it came down to, in this case, it was a, uh, a religious authority that was tied up a little bit with governing authority at the time, because they're actually arresting them. Uh, when that was coming into play, they were very clearly like, you know what, we're respectful, we'll obey you every way we can, but not on this, because it would require us not to obey God. And will always obey God rather than men. The principles here are that when magistrates or governing authorities inhibit obedience to God, we must obey God and defy tyrants. If we disobey God in order to obey men, we have committed idolatry. And this is a very clear thing. In the same way that if I were that Adam and Eve listened and obeyed the serpent in the garden instead of obeying God, so it is now. If I obey any civil or religious authority, who ask me to disobey God, what I'm essentially doing is rendering to Caesar that which is God, and I have committed adultery if I do that. Uh, not a, idolatry. You know, I did that when I was practicing too, and I was like, Dan, don't say that wrong. Um, haven't committed that one, but I will have committed adultery if I were to do that. I, dang it, I did it twice! Oh, man, that's... Idolatry, idolatry. Oh, my gosh. Sorry about that, everybody. The second principle here is that when brought before tyrants, proclaim the gospel. Notice that, like, what do they do? They use it as an opportunity to proclaim Christ's death and resurrection for our sins. Um, That should tell us something. That I don't stand before the tyrant and say, here's how much I hate you. I stand before him and say, Jesus died for you too. And I proclaim the gospel even there, that every one of these things should be an opportunity for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, throughout church history, this has been what's happened, is that even the arrest of our brothers and sisters was used as an opportunity for the gospel. I know we keep referencing James Coates in Canada. As As the saints continue to face persecution, just brothers and sisters, a few miles north of us, They're facing legitimate persecution, and what are they doing? They continue to be respectful, obeying obeying in every way they can, and flagrantly disobeying any time it involves violating God's word. And what are they doing when they're caught? They're proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is going forth as a result. So praise the Lord. So some key realities as we're finishing out here. We're almost done. Um, First of all, let's acknowledge that within our system of government, the Constitution is the law of the land. Within the United States, that's how it works. The Constitution, not the President, not Congress, the Constitution is the law of the land. Anytime there is a law that is in violation of our Constitution, keeping in mind, Romans 13 obedience means I obey the Constitution rather than that tyrannical law. I know that's a controversial one, but that is the reality of how our government is structured. And if we are going to obey Romans 13, we have to recognize what is in fact the rule of law and obey that. That has a whole can of worms that we're not going to be able to get into today, but... Feel free to seek the Lord. 
Um, magistrates, orders, and laws which do not adhere to the law of the land are not to be obeyed. Uh, the U.S. has laws and mandates that at times, let's be honest, brothers and sisters, mock God's law. Uh, laws that protect baby murderers are no laws at all and should be disobeyed, um, if I'm clear on that. Uh, if there is a law that involves acknowledging something to be true that is false, that's sinful. Um, I'm bringing this up in part because uh, this Equality Act very well may pass and it will have dire influence on the church. Uh, being very honest, we will obey God rather than men on those things. Uh, we will not call men women. Uh, we will not honor uh, same-sex unions as marriage. We will speak very clearly about what God's law says, and it might mean some very difficult things for us. I'm hoping that we avoid that, honestly. I'm, I'm not trying to fearmonger on this. I'm just, if this happens, we are going to respond by obeying God rather than men. And... Um, this is where we're at on that. So we won't go into too much uh, on that. I do want to take some time to encourage, if you have not taken time to study this, study some church history on this topic. People forget that in the first century church into the second and really arguably into the third, that you could totally be a Christian. It was totally fine. You were allowed to be a Christian. No problem. You could even say that Jesus was Lord. As long as once a year you grabbed a little pinch of incense in the temple, the pagan temple, and you dropped that pinch of incense and you declared that Caesar was also Lord. Was all, all they wanted was lip service to Caesar. The reason why the first century Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire, distinct from what was happening in, in, in Israel, was because they refused to acknowledge Caesar as God. I want to tell you, that little pinch of incense thing would be a lot like just as, as simple as we think of like saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And it's like, well, come on, why can't you just do it? You know, it's not a big deal. Just put your hand over your heart, do this thing. The, the language there is like, just, just come on, just a little pinch of incense, just say the words. That's all we want from you. Just say the words. And the faithful Christians were like, no, 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 that would be lying. That would be disrespect. It would be denying the true king, and I won't do it. And they were thrown to lions, they were beaten, they were persecuted, they were martyred because they wouldn't say those three little words, uh, which actually in Latin, I think it was two words. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, reading on. So um, I will tell you something we haven't studied much, and we're not going to get into it today, but I would encourage you to do some study on the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. Um, right now, there are states that are passing laws to essentially say, nope, uh, we're not going to allow abortion here. Uh, and that is a defense against the tyrant. The lesser magistrate, the, my direct authority, uh, protects me against the tyrant that is over them. Um, the, in the same way, there's sanctuary gun laws where, where states are saying, like, no, 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 well, this is a freedom, this is part of the Constitution, so whatever federal law is made, we're, we're going to block that. Uh, that's doctrine of lesser magistrate. Very similar to Daniel, who goes to his immediate authority in Daniel chapter 1 and says, hey, I, I, we need to work something out so I can't, because I can't violate my God's law and eat this meat. Um, making sense? Doctrine of lesser magistrate. Take some time to study it. I encourage it. But the conclusion here, brothers and sisters, is that we are to obey governing authorities in any way we can until they tell us to do something that is a violation of God's law. And then, like Daniel in chapter, uh, chapter 6 we throw open the windows, we kneel down, and we flagrantly defy tyrants in obedience to God. Um, I will encourage you. Um, we're going to pray here in just a second. A couple of great books on the subject um, or is Vindicie Contra Tyrannis, uh, which is a, a good, faithful, reformed, 400-plus-year-old document about how to respond to tyranny. Also, Slaying Leviathan by Glenn Sunshine. These are both good, faithful theologians 
who love the Lord, believe Jesus is king, and they've written very well on the subject and have given much more thought to it than I have. Um, so uh, as we do that, I want to pray. Um, any thoughts or questions before we close out here? Um, well, it's a defense of uh, a freedom against tyrants is the English one. It's Vindicie contra tyrannis. Um, it was, yeah, it was written by the Huguenots. Um, so a defense of liberty against tyrants um, by the Huguenots during the time when you have the Reformation coming through France and they're persecuting Christians who believe the true gospel. And um, so they're writing about like how do we respond to this? And the answer was we obey God rather than men. Um, great stuff there. Uh, whole kinds of interesting things related to church history on this topic. Um, principles of religious freedom are biblical principles, and it's kind of a cool thing how, and when, when, when we teach God's kingdom, freedom is better for everybody. Um, so good stuff there. I am going to pray, and then we have, um, Brian's going to share the gospel, and then we are going to take communion. Uh, so Lord, thank you so much. Um, as I often pray, Lord, may, uh, may anything that might be my opinion be wiped away and forgotten. Uh, even if I uh, unintentionally apply something incorrectly, Lord, may that be done away with. But Lord, we recognize that your words will never pass away. So in so much as I have declared your word, um, may that not be forgotten. Uh, Lord, in so much as the principles at play from your word are in the hearts of your believers here, Lord, may we obey them rightly. Lord, give us wisdom. You say you have given us the Holy Spirit. We know you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit. He is in us, directing our steps, illuminating the word of God, and giving us clarity on application. Lord, we need that. Give us direction and clarity as we obey you. And Lord, may we faithfully obey men uh, as well, as in so much as they are applying your law. And so we lift all this up before you. Uh, bless us as we prepare for communion and hear the gospel in Christ's name. Amen. Brian, it is your, your day to proclaim the gospel. Go for it, my friend. All right. God created us.